Welcome to Thoughts from Home, your conservation podcast from the National Conservation Training Center. We're located along the Potomac River in historic Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and are home to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our podcast. And today we're going to be talking about the world of scientific river diving. And we have two river divers to talk to today. We have Ryan Haggerty. Ryan is a senior video producer and a regional diving safety officer for the Fish and Wildlife Service. And he works at NCTC in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. And we also have Matthew Patterson. And Matthew is a fish and wildlife biologist and course leader at NCTC, and he is a certified Fish and Wildlife Service diver. And so today we're gonna be talking about the world of scientific river diving. I'd like them to talk a little bit about why they do this and what are some of the kinds of things that they see and what it really feels to be a river diving for the service. Ryan, you wanna talk a little bit about it? Tell me about why you do this kind of work. Sure, Jim. Yeah, I've been diving now for over 20 years. I got into it not as much on the biology angle, but as a way to photograph and uh, videotape species that are out of sight and out of mind. Um, When something's underwater and a human is topside, you can sometimes not see it at all, or even very, very murkily, you can see it a little bit. But so yeah, for me, it's it's all about accessing those species. And over the years, I started diving more and more with freshwater mussel biologists who were conducting surveys on some of the different big rivers in the Northeast, the Ohio River and the Allegheny River. And um, I got to really enjoy river diving and all its uh, interesting things that can happen underwater in a river and low visibility. And I think let's roll back a little bit when we think about diving. The public and even a lot of divers, they think about scuba diving. They think of ocean diving and coral reefs and and high visibility where you can see for several hundred feet potentially and everything is bright. And river diving can be quite the opposite. We don't generally dive in extremely black water, but it can be nearly no visibility in some of these river situations. So it comes with it its own set of safety considerations and um, psychological challenges. So yeah, that's a brief synopsis of why I dive. And more recently, though, I definitely have been photographing a lot of new species and trying to make sure that for the Fish and Wildlife Service, we can at least demonstrate in, in imagery those species that we protect underwater. So yeah. That's it in brief for me. Matthew, you've worked a lot on endangered mussels for the service. Can you tell a little bit about your work with endangered freshwater mussels and what what kind of things you've been doing out there as a scientific river diver? Sure, Jim. Yeah, Ryan mentioned freshwater mussels. They're one of the most endangered groups of animals worldwide. A lot of species are in decline, and so there's a lot of people that are working with them across the service and in the states and tribal entities as well. And interestingly, when I first started out, it was, you do a lot of snorkeling. Mussels tend to 
occur in areas that are relatively shallow. But even if it's three feet of water depth and you can't quite see the bottom because mussels burrow in the substrate. And so you got to really get down there close to be able to find them. If you're snorkeling and you're kind of going down to the bottom and holding your breath and you sort of drift back to the top and you catch your breath a little bit and you go back down, well, that can be really dangerous to do that. You can get something called um, shallow water blackout where you you black out and of course you're in water and so that can be really dangerous. So if it gets above three feet, you want to put that scuba gear on. And it also allows you to get right down on the surface so that you can see those muscles, you can see what they're doing. And why are you collecting muscles? Well, one, you want to do surveys. You want to know how they're doing, track their populations. But also we have a lot of facilities that do muscle propagation. So they would bring what's called a gravid female or a female that's holding the larval stage in, in the gills, bring it into the lab, extract those, put them on a fish. They have to have a fish host to metamorphose into a juvenile. And then when the juveniles grow up to a certain size, then you release them back into the stream to help stop the decline of, of species in the wild. That's mostly the kind of work that I've done with mussels, but Fish and Wildlife Service biologists dive for all kinds of species, salamanders and fishes and freshwater mussels and aquatic insects, anything that lives in the water, someone's diving looking for it. That's a great lead in, Matthew. I mean, Fish and Wildlife Service divers across the country, we have divers in the Pacific Islands and they can be surveying sharks, coral reefs, you name it. Um, and that is very different diving that can be very deep. It can have very dangerous currents in the ocean. In the Florida Keys, we have law enforcement divers that are trying to make sure coral is not being poached. And so, uh, Matthew also stated a number of the other things that people survey for. Uh, we also have divers in the Rocky Mountains that dive at high elevation lakes uh, looking for invasive species like some of the, I think, quagga mussels and some of the other invasive or snails. Can both of you tell a little bit how diving in rivers and lakes and freshwater environments is different than diving in marine environments. Ryan mentioned a little bit of that earlier. Two big things that I see as the major differences are current and visibility. In a river, you've got current that's moving in one direction. In the ocean, you typically don't have that, although there's some areas where you do have what's called drift diving, where there's a current that you can follow. But in rivers, you have to fight that current. You have to maintain yourself in place, especially if you're trying to take a photograph or if you're trying to look for a muscle. So you have to have extra weight that sort of serves as an anchor and holds you to the bottom. In the ocean, you're what's called neutrally buoyant, which just means you're floating kind of in the, in the middle water column. In the river, you're, you're down on the bottom with some extra weight because of that current. The other thing was visibility, and Ryan mentioned this too. Some cases in rivers, you may have zero visibility. In other words, it's like going into a cave. Maybe you've been on a cave tour where they've turned the lights out on you. That's sometimes what it can look like. I did a dive like that one time in the Kanawha River where I'm at the bottom doing quadrats. So I'm putting a little square down and pulling muscles out and putting them in bags. And it was so dark down there that I had to close my eyes because my mind was playing tricks with me. You think that you would see something go swim in front of you because your eyes are expecting to see something, but in total darkness, 
you close your eyes and suddenly you kind of calm down and then you, you do your work. So those are the two big things. And Ryan mentioned in the Bahamas, you could have 200 feet of visibility. So you might be at 100 feet diving and you can look up and see the boat. In a river, like say the Potomac River, if Ryan is five feet away from me or even three feet away from me, sometimes I can't see him. So that's an extra challenge is navigating underwater without being able to always see where you're going or see your buddy underwater. What are some of the safety concerns? You mentioned the the visibility and sometimes you're in almost complete darkness. What other safety concerns do you have when you are doing scientific river diving? Some of those safety concerns have to do with the lack of visibility, getting separated from your dive buddy. So we put uh, certain procedures in place where we can either dive tethered to each other or tethered to a boat where we have a guy who's are minding the tether and he uses line signals to tell us things. And we use line signals back. We yank on that rope to say, I'm good. I need more rope or pull me up, things like that. You can also um, have a line on the bottom of the river. And that helps with monitoring these biological transects too and doubles as a safety line. So you can go down on a line from the boat and you get to the bottom and you go across the river a hundred feet or so and then you go up another line never straying more than a foot or two from that line so you know where your buddy is and you know where that line is a couple things i would add to that is you can dive with something that's called a full face mask so for those that are familiar with snorkeling you just have a, a mask over your eyes so that you can see and it covers your nose This is a full face mask. It covers your entire face so that you can talk. Normally you would have a regulator in your mouth and you can't say anything. This is the mask covers your entire face and there's a communications unit inside. So you can actually talk to the boat. You can talk to your your dive buddy and say, I need help. Or maybe it's not a safety thing. You can just send scientific data up to the boat. Say you're collecting substrate data and you're like, hey, this is mostly sand in this spot. Well, here's some cobble and gravel and you're sending that up to someone that's recording that up above. The other thing that I wanted to mention was a something that's called a pony bottle. There's just an extra bottle that you carry in case your primary system fails for some reason. You have an extra little bottle with another regulator on it that gives you just enough air that you can get to the surface. Anybody that's seen, and these always make me nervous, but seeing people diving in caves, a lot of times you'll see they have more than one tank or they have two tanks on their back and a tank in the front. And that's designed to be redundant systems so that if one fails, you better bet they've got something else there to to make sure that they have enough air to get out. So that's what this little pony bottle is, is just in case something goes wrong, you've still got some air and can get to the surface. Do you ever encounter obstacles like logs and overhanging stones and rocks that make it like you're diving in caves in these river experiences? Yes. um, In almost any river, there will be logs that are submerged and sometimes rocks that are a little bit overhanging, though we definitely don't go into anything that's remotely like a cave because we're not licensed to do that in the work that we do. Cave diving gets 
well into a different layer of problems and, and uh, safety solutions for that. But in the case of logs, those can be quite amazing because they provide habitat for some really interesting fish and other animals that are they're taking advantage of that habitat. And so whether it be a rock or a log, oftentimes that's really exciting to come across because that means you're gonna see uh, some type of new underwater animal. Another thing that you run into a lot is human debris. Fishing line is a big one. Fishing line can get wrapped around you Typically, carrying a knife of some kind will allow you to extricate yourself from that fishing line or or whatever it is in the water. You can also come across, we were talking about this just before we got started here, you can come across river treasures as well. And one thing that's we come across a lot is baby dolls or baby doll heads. You just never know what you're going to see in the bottom of the river. We found a, a safe once on the Allegheny River right below a bridge recovered the safe and found the owner of the safe that someone had stolen it driven across the bridge and i think probably being chased by police and threw this thing off the bridge the key though to river treasures is that if you find them and you take them from the river if you bring them to the surface they must stay with the boat that you climb back on it's a it becomes a hazard it's a it's a you know, this it's a good thing, superstition. It's, yeah, it's a superstition. It's exactly right. If, and I remember Ohio River Islands used to have this this parrot that they found, and it was the mascot for the boat, and that thing stayed on the boat all the time. And we never sank, so I, it must work. It must it work. Must... And its name was Margaret, too. So. <laughs> That's right, Margaret. So, yeah, you uh, coming across the baby dolls, for some reason, I don't know, it's because of their density, but we would see several. And one time there was a baby doll that was at least three feet tall. And it was in one of the the scuba lanes upside down with the feet sticking out of the substrate. And one of the divers played a joke on another and stuck it in her lane. And you could hear when she got to the doll, but you could hear her breathe in and, oh! (laughs) So there's definitely some things you, you always worry about the what ifs and diving. What if I come across a car or heaven forbid the remains of a human too? That's, you know, the, that's not without precedent in, in diving. Um, and of course, public safety divers, which are a group of divers that specialized in recovery of when there's a tragedy of humans and, and property. Uh, but we, uh, Thankfully, don't have to do that. But yeah, I respect what those divers do because that's a really, really hard job. The things that I'm very interested in is I'd like to know how it feels. What is the, the diving experience like? How does it feel with your skin and in your mind, give us some sense of the experience. I sort of liken it to traveling in space. You have to typically wear a suit. In rivers in particular, it's for thermal protection, but it also protects your skin from, you know, you might, there's a lot of glass, shards of glass out in the river. There's lots of sharp rocks, those kinds of things. So you always have either a wetsuit or if it's really cold, you you have a dry suit on. You have to carry your air with you. So you have a mask just like an astronaut would. You're carrying 
air along so that you can breathe just like you would be outside of the of the space station making a if you're fixing something oh and the, the other thing is it's it's alien it's like a whole different world than the above ground experience as soon as your your face gets in the water it's totally different everything lives differently all the animals are different they're all breathing oxygen and water not breathing oxygen out of the air so I, I liken it very much to a not that i've ever walked in space but i have a feeling that that's what it would feel like because of that sense of being in this alien world and having to carry your life support systems with you it is really interesting in that respect there's nothing like it to compare on the air breathing surface when you're underwater oftentimes fish react to you much differently than they would if you are even wading if your feet are in the water and you're wading through shallow water once you're in their zone oftentimes fish can be very curious when you're surveying for freshwater mussels you're turning over rocks and you're looking under things and you are creating food for fish and other animals so you often have like a smallmouth bass that becomes your buddy and he waits for you to turn over a rock and you might turn it over and lo and behold there's a crayfish and he will dart down right in front of you and take that crayfish so it's it's a really interesting process when you get underwater and you relax and you start to observe that new world. I would say that goes for snorkeling too. Like it's different than even than snorkeling. Your face is in the water, but because your part of your body is breaking the water surface, I think fish are more skeptical of you. If you're totally submerged, they think you're part of the environment and they're more willing to approach you and be curious about you and not necessarily run away. Do they treat you as a predator? Do they ever seem to be frightened since they haven't seen a human being before that way? I think that depends on the species. For example, we came across some sunfishes in the Cacapan River this year. who They're building nests at that particular time of year. And they're every other male that comes anywhere near the nest they're just swimming off really fast and scaring it away and then they come right back to the nest and then another male comes and they scare them off and you get up close and they turn around and just look at you <laughs> as if to say what are you doing here you know but i don't think they think you're a predator i think they're just they think you're going to take over my nest or or take over my females and that, i'm not okay with that <laughs> other species they especially if you're trying to capture photos they stay a certain distance away at all times. They're, they're always like five, six feet away, and you just kind of see their shadows as they're moving around. They don't like to get too close. And then some little little fishes, like Ryan was saying, you're stirring stuff up as you're moving. You just turn around and you have a whole school of minnows behind you because they're picking and eating at all this food that you're stirring up. And they'll, if you just turn around and float downstream, you'll just float through this school of minnows and they just kind of, they don't pay any attention to you. They just kind of pick at the food and sometimes they'll even pick at your body as you're stirring up that food. It's kind of a joke of ours that when you're looking for a, an elusive endangered species to survey for or photograph, chances are they're right behind you, you know? So yeah, I just tend to drift back a few feet and look to my left and 
heck, there's a fish. So, but yeah, on the uh, do they treat you as predators? Sometimes yeah, it's interesting that the other predators, like freshwater muskie, they keep their distance from us. The other big fish in the stream, uh, and when they do come by, it's not usually a, a darting, a real fast look-see. But yeah, some of the other fish, uh, it really does depend on the species, how they behave. And I do find the sunfish to be some of the most gregarious fish out there. They're very curious. And some of the bass, I've had bass threaten me underwater as well when they're protecting a nest. So it's it's quite an interesting experience, snorkeling and scuba. But yeah, it does change depending on where, where you are. I was just up in... Um, Fairbanks, Alaska, and I was diving in a dry suit with one of our very experienced divers up there. And it's so cold in those waters, we even have attached gloves to our dry suits. Gives you a few more minutes in the water before you get too chilly. So we were trying to photograph Arctic grayling, and they're a really fascinating fish with a long dorsal fin, a really tall dorsal fin that they will flash up when they get excited about food. And they were very curious fish, but yet the biggest ones, which I consider to probably be the longest lived, they seem the most wise and they keep a little farther distance than the small ones. Another predator I might mention that we see in the Potomac a lot is the flathead catfish. And they use this a different approach. They try to hide from you. They're very cryptically colored and so they blend into the into the bottom, or at least they think they do. I think they blend in really well for things that are going to try to eat them. We can see them pretty well. So you approach them and they'll just sit there and sit there and sit there and you can get real close and get a photo. And then all of a sudden you just get a fraction too close and bam, they're gone. And they just disappear within a cloud of smoke. So their tendency is to hide from you until you just get a little bit too close and then they're out of there. And they can be huge too the the catfish the, especially the flatheads and evidently they're more and more in the potomac they uh correct me if i'm wrong matthew but i think they're originally native to the mississippi drainage but were placed here at some point that would be a good place for us to end our part one and we will use the second part and talk about some of the interesting species that you have worked with Thank you for listening to the National Conservation Training Center podcast series. If you have feedback, thoughts, or stories you'd like to share, contact us at nctc underscore podcast at fws.gov.